We're in the book of Revelation, and I know this is a, a kind of a straining study. And there's a lot of difficult things that we are dealing with. But I want you to also realize how important it is that we have an idea of what's happening in our world and what is coming. So I just hope you can appreciate at least that aspect of it, because this isn't the most cheery thing that we can talk about, but it is the truth of the Word of God. So we're in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7 through 13, and we're going to see this week shock and awe, killed and resurrected, talking about the two witnesses. So there's going to be a lot of strange stuff this week. So if you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. The strangeness starts right off the bat with this beast ascending out of the bottomless pit. He's raised from the dead. We're going to be talking about that more as we go through our teaching. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell in the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Father, we thank you for your word and Holy Spirit. Each one of us needs to be touched in a different area. We have a different area of need. Speak to our hearts today things that we need to know and to hear from our great God. Thank you that you are in our midst right now and that you love us dearly. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So please be seated. So, shock and awe, killed and resurrected. That's what we're going to be talking about. The theme of Revelation is Jesus is coming, and he's coming in judgment, and he's going to come and establish his thousand-year millennial kingdom. This we believe to be true, and I hope you believe that. Last week, well, last week we, we were introduced to the millennial temple, and the two witnesses are going to witness for three and a half years, and we know that John was told to measure the temple, the worshipers, and the altar, those things that belong to God. He, he was not told to measure the court of Gentiles because those were the earth dwellers that were rejecting God and rejecting God. And we know these witnesses were, were dynamic, that nothing could hurt them for this whole three and a half year period of time. Think about this. Think about what these witnesses went through, these two witnesses, and what the world has gone through. They've gone through all the seal judgments. Remember where the Antichrist is coming in a white horse and he brings this false peace to earth and very soon goes into the red horse where there's war and then there's famine after that and then there's death and one-fourth of the earth is killed. One-fourth of the earth. Two billion people just about. And they are witnessing this. These two witnesses are witnessing for our Lord during this whole time frame and so few are turning. And I believe these two witnesses also influenced the 144,000 that we studied earlier in chapter 7, and these are the witnesses throughout the world, and they had a huge harvest of souls. So think about this. God has the two witnesses in Jerusalem witnessing to the Jewish remnant, and then God has the 144,000 spread throughout the world witnessing to the rest of the world, Gentiles and whoever they come in contact with. And a huge number out of every tribe, tongue, and nation is saved. Now, 
Now, these two witnesses did some pretty significant things. No rain for three and a half years. In the midst of this three and a half years of no rain, they could send plagues, kind of like Moses' plagues. And they could also breathe fire, remember, on their enemies. And they would die, anyone that tried to come up against them. They were invulnerable until God said so. And I want to remind you that you also are invulnerable until God says so. And once God says so, then that's it. That's it. You get to go. You get to go to heaven. Now, that's oftentimes we look at that as a grievous thing here on earth. But to that person that has passed from here to there, that's like the greatest day of their life. That's like hip, hip, hooray. I am finally home to where I'm supposed to be. So this week, we're going to be talking about shock and awe, killed and resurrected. And again, these guys are going to be giving their testimony and nothing can happen until God says so. And never forget this. God has a plan. And that's verse 7. God has a plan. When they finish their testimony, verse 7 through 10, excuse me. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. So this is the Antichrist being resurrected, killing the two witnesses. Weird stuff, isn't it? And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That's going to be Jerusalem. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. That's the entire world's going to witness this. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because the two prophets that tormented those who dwell on the earth, they're finally dead. They're finally out of the way. But what they don't know yet, and we already know, in three and a half days, there is going to be more shock and awe. So they finished their testimony. And think about this. Think about the anger of the Antichrist. Think about the anger of Satan, because they cannot do anything to these two witnesses. They might be able to kill other people in the world, but they can't touch these two who are sealed by the living God. Can't do it. God's plan is this, that you are invulnerable until God says so. So if you're afraid to fly, don't be afraid to fly. You're invulnerable until God says so. You're afraid to hike up a mountain? Well, maybe you might have a little sense there. But anyway, don't, don't, don't restrict your life because you're afraid to do something. You are invulnerable until God says so. We don't want to be presumptuous. So. But anyway, when God says so, the Antichrist will kill these two witnesses. But only when God says so. Their mission will be accomplished. And the world will think this. The world will think that Antichrist is the hero. Antichrist is Hercules. Antichrist is the one who could finally take these two guys out. In God's timing, God will allow the Antichrist to do this. But in God's timing, God will also allow the Antichrist, the beast, to be killed. And I want you to think about something. He gets killed. If you would, just turn to Revelation chapter 13, verse 2 and 3. You'll read the following. Just to set up here, it's, this is talking about the beast that comes out of the sea which are the Gentile nations. He's going to have seven heads and ten horns. We're going to talk about that more. We've talked about that in the book of Daniel. So if you don't understand it at this point, I'll review it again, most gauche. But anyway, this beast in verse 2, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Now this is talking about Nebuchadnezzar's statue that we saw 
in the book of Daniel. Remember the head of gold was Babylon and then silver was the, was the Persians and then, then you had Greece and then you had Rome, the, 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 the two legs of Rome and Rome was broken into an east and west grouping. And today we have an east and west split on the earth of nations and people groups. They'll come out of that group. So the leopard, the bear, and the, the lion, the dragon gave him his power, gave the Antichrist his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded. The beast head is mortally wounded. That's a death blow. A death blow. And his deadly wound was healed. Now, this is an idiom for resurrection. And we see in our text today that this beast is in the bottomless pit and resurrected. And I think that Satan is going to pull this off. For whatever reason, God's going to allow him to do this. More on that in just a second. So, what we know about the tribulation period. We know that the first part of the tribulation period is that Antichrist war machine will go throughout throughout planet earth. Now he's going to do this and he's going to actually be going into a situation where the world has already been divided into 10 ruling areas. Those are the 10 kings or the 10 horns. Three of those kings will rebel against the Antichrist and he will subdue them and bring them under his control as he takes over the whole world. Now as I'm saying this and pointing on this next next. Uh, slide, you turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. At the same time, watch me. So, 10, 10 nations. This is actually the United Nations, believe it or not, has the world already split up into 10 ruling areas. Now, I don't know if this is how it's going to be, but this gives you an idea of what is coming. 10 kings, 10 horns, 10 world rulers in different areas of our world. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 through 8, which we don't read, but all, in 7, 23 through 27, we will see that three rulers will resist the Antichrist. So let me find my spot, and then I'll read this to you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. Now, I want you to think about something before I say this. There's an angel speaking to Daniel. The angel is telling Daniel what is going to happen in the future. He's telling him about an Antichrist is going to come. That Antichrist will be defeated by the Ancient of Days, and he's going to give an outline or a breakdown of how that's going to happen. In verse 23, we, we see this. Thus he said that he is the angel speaking to Daniel. The fourth beast, which is Rome. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Remember the toes were the ten-nation confederation. Remember, mixture of iron and clay. Strong but weak, easily broken. That's just to keep our thought, keep us focused on what's going on here. A fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. And why is it different? Because now this kingdom will devour the whole earth. This cannot be speaking about the Roman, in the ancient Rome, because ancient Rome only extended as far as the Parthians and only extended up to Scotland. It did not occupy the whole world, even that was known at that time. But this one, this Antichrist, this one that comes out of the Roman Empire, will occupy the whole world. He'll take on the whole world. That's the thing we want to remember. He will trample it. He will break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, ten ruling areas. 
who shall arise from this kingdom. Another shall arise from them. This is the Antichrist. He's going to rise up when these are already established. So this one world government or one world order or this globalism that we're marching headlong into will already be in effect when Antichrist comes to power. Something to think about. And another, another shall rise after him. He'll be different from the rest than the other ones. And he shall subdue three kings, or he will humble them. He will bring them under his control. He shall, there's going to be a war there. These three kings are going to resist. It's going to be important here in a few minutes. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Isn't that what the Antichrist does? Isn't that what Satan likes to do? Pompous words, arrogance. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. You know what that actually means? He's going, to in, he's going to insist that people take the mark of the beast. This is, talking, this is an allusion to the abomination of desolation. He's going to force the mark of the beast. Then the saint shall be given into his hand for, three, for, for a time and a times and a half a time. That's three and a half years. So the last three and a half years of the tribulation, they are given into his hands. He forces the mark of the beast. He'll kill anybody who doesn't take the mark of the beast. And he'll try to kill every Jew that is on the face of the earth and any believer that's in Jesus Christ. More on that in just a second. I hope I can remember all these more of that that I'm supposed to cover. <laughs> but it just says in verse 26, but the court shall be seated. Remember in Daniel, we talked about a heavenly court. And we had these angels that are in a court. Of course, God is the chief Elohim over all these other angels. But the court is, is seated. And they shall take away his dominion. That's the Antichrist dominion. To consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Those are believers. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all dominions shall serve him and obey him. So we have a, nation, we have a world that is split into ten ruling areas. And Antichrist is going to assume power. Remember, he ascends to power slowly during the first three and a half years. He reaches his zenith in the middle of the tribulation when he insists on the mark of the, of the beast and to be worshipped as God. And then he's forcing everyone to bow before, them, before him. Now, during his rampage on earth, some believe, now stick with me with this, because this is getting into do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. We, we, we already went through some strange stuff. Well, this is going to be strange also. During his rampage on earth, some believe the Antichrist will meet his demise with a mortal headwind. We've already went through that text. In our text today, the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit, has been killed. That's our 11-7 text. Who are... Who are housed in the bottomless pit? Let me ask you that question. When an unbeliever dies today, they are instantly transported to a place called torment. That is their holding tank until the great white throne judgment when they'll be judged and their final destination will be the lake of fire. That's Revelation chapter 20. Right now they're in that holding tank. It used That holding tank used to have paradise in torment when jesus died and was resurrected he set paradise free and now to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord and paradise is in heaven because paul was caught up to the third heaven called paradise 
and he saw great things in 2 Corinthians chapter or whatever it is. Okay? So, now an interesting thought here. The bottomless pit only contains the demonic realm. Yet Antichrist is seen there. There is a postulate really posed by a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Footsteps of Messiah. And he believes that the Antichrist is going to be a Nephthalim. Remember in Genesis chapter 6 that the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. So these are angels impregnating earthly women. And out of that came the Nephthalim, the giants of old. And there was, there was, remember the giants of old were to contaminate the gene pool, and that was the reason for the flood. And they almost got down to it till eight people on earth were left. Eight people not contaminated by Satan's plan, and then God rescued them in the ark. We went through this in the past, probably hazy for most of you and weird to the rest of you. But anyway, that's, that's the, the supposition that this guy will be a Nephilim. And it actually goes back to Genesis 3.15 when it is the first gospel is preached, after, after uh, Satan has tempted Adam and Eve, and the fall has come, then there's the distribution of consequences from the fall. The woman gets to have children out of pain, the man gets to work through thorns and thistles, and, and the serpent crawls on his belly and eats dust. But he also says this in verse 15, God says to this to Satan, I will put enmity or hostility or hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, Israel, and between your seed, Satan, and her seed, which is going to be Jesus, Messiah, and his followers. The supposition is that your seed or Satan's seed is a singular seed, which will be someone that impregnates a, a Roman woman or somebody from the Roman Empire, and from that will come this antichrist creature. Now, I want now this is a stretch, isn't it? It's, it is a stretch. He sh- and then notice what happens. Now, this is not a stretch. He shall bruise your head. Messiah will bruise your head. He, that is a death wound. Again, that's a that's a killing wound. Jesus will cause you to die, Satan. You will bruise his heel, but he'll cause a death wound to you. Now, again, many people. Uh, don't agree with Arnold Fruchtenbaum on this. And I don't know where exactly where I am on this, and I don't know where you are on that. That's less important than this fact. We do know that this Antichrist will have a resurrection out of the bottomless pit where the only dwellers of that pit are fallen angels. So that's something to think about that gives kind of this thing a little bit of credence. Now, also remember that Satan is the great copycat. In Isaiah 14, 14, he said these, this, this, this statement of hubris, the statement of arrogance. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I'm going to be just like God. Now, in being just like God, he's going to have this resurrection of the Antichrist. Notice the following. I think it's a good time to review the satanic trinity. Now I do believe this to be true. Satan tries to copy God and wants to be worshipped as God. We already saw that in Isaiah 14, 14. Satan is the counterfeit father. Antichrist is the counterfeit son. The false prophet is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. 
The mark of the beast is the counterfeit sealing. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but when you were saved, in Ephesians 1.13, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. You belong to God. You are protected by God. This is the security that God gives his people. But the Satan is going to want to copy this and have his people sealed and belong to him. And remember, anyone who takes the mark of the beast is going to be lost forever. Lost forever. So Satan is a copycat. He wants you to copy him, to follow him. And remember, uh, in Revelation 9.1, we saw an angel with the key to the bottomless pit. And this angel goes and looses the pit. And what comes out of the pit? These demonic hordes that are going to be stinging people like locusts. And they're going to be stinging like scorpions. They're going to be like locusts swarming the earth and stinging people for five months. Five, and they can't die. And remember we said this was a picture of something. It is a picture of hell and being separated from God and the torture and the misery that people will ex- experience that are separated from God. Remember God is showing people on the earth what it will be like to be separated from them in hopes that they turn and live. The beast will ascend out of the bottomless pit, a resurrection by Satan, and for whatever reason, God will allow this as a one-off. This is not something that Satan can do at his will. He just cannot just say, oh, I think I'll raise this one. No, this is a one-time thing for Satan. Now, I want you to also think about something. We know that the Antichrist is going to experience a head wound and die and be resurrected. There's words to that effect there. Concomitant with that, we have Antichrist on the earth going through his rampage with the nations, getting control of the earth. I think it is at that time, kind of concomitant with that, at the same time, is that Satan will instigate a rebellion in heaven. Thinking, okay, we're going to get control of earth. We're going to, in his crazy that he thinks he's going to take over heaven. That's Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 12. Now, we don't have time to go through that. We'll go through that in depth in another couple weeks. But I'll give you the cliff notes. It is, he, he, he instigates a rebellion. He has angels. Michael puts down the rebellion. Satan and his angels are cast to earth. And heaven rejoices. But you know what it says? Woe to the earth. He's thrown down to the earth. It is at this point, many expositors believe, that Satan possesses the Antichrist. Demon possession of the Antichrist. Remember, to function in this realm, what do demonic spirits need? See, they're in another dimension. They come into our dimension, what do they need? They need a body. That's why they're always looking to seek a body to inhabit so they can do their thing. Same with Satan. He's looking to inhabit a body so he can further do his stuff here on planet Earth. Revelation 13.4 gives us a little indication of this. So they worship the dragon who gave authority or power to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? So notice who they're worshiping. They're worshiping the dragon and they, they associate the dragon exclusively with the Antichrist, very tightly. So it is here that some people believe that Satan possesses the Antichrist. There's a possession. More credence to this. Two people in Scripture 
are possessed by Satan, and they are called the son of perdition. Only two. One of them was Judas in John chapter 17, verse 12. And the second is Antichrist, which is in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. We've been to these scriptures before in our past teachings. And what does Satan want to do once he possesses the Antichrist? He wants to kill any opposition that is before him. And who are before him? The two witnesses are before him. So he possesses the Antichrist. And now Satan, I think at this point, will kill the two witnesses. So God will allow a possessed Antichrist to make war against the two witnesses and kill them. And interestingly enough, you know what they do in the East with bodies to just show their enemies that they are so superior? They drag them through the streets. They leave them naked in the streets so that everyone can witness how great they are. And that's what Antichrist does. How great I am as these two witnesses lie in the streets, probably naked. I don't know if you know those, remember those pictures from years ago when that, when that special forces guy was drugged through the streets and he was laid in the streets naked. That is a victory over your enemies in the east to demonstrate the power of Satan. So then Satan will then try, after he kills the two witnesses, will try to kill every Jew and he will persecute the woman. We see this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 13 through 17, which we will get to in a few weeks. Okay. But just to give you the short version, Satan is booted out of heaven. He's in a fit of rage and he chases the woman who gave birth to the child, the Jewish people. And they make their exit to Petra. Now it is at this time, right around this time, that Satan had, or the false prophet has insisted that people take the mark of the beast, put the statue of Antichrist up in the, up in the temple, and insist on worship and people be taking the mark of the beast. So these people see that and they make their exit as fast as they can. They know they're to go to Petra from Old Testament prophecy. And that's where they are protected. The Antichrist chases them. His army is swallowed up. They are destroyed. These guys are safe, protected by God. And then he goes to make war on the offspring. That would be the church or any other Jew he can find. He wants to destroy Jewish people. So, a possible order of events in summary. Now, believe me, there are people that have these listed in different sequence but chapters 10 through 14 are not in sequence. So you have to try to deduce the sequence from those chapters. Okay? So, number one. This is my version. The beast is killed in Revelation 13.3. Satan then makes war in the heaven kind of at the same time. He loses and he's thrown to the earth. Satan raises Antichrist from the pit. Satan then possesses the Antichrist in 13.4. He kills the two witnesses that we see in 11.7. And then Satan pursues the fleeing Jews. And we just went through that in 12.13-17. So are you with me up to this point? Just give me one of these. Just give me yes. It's like taking chemistry and you're talking about all these shells and everything. You're going... You guys understand me? You're going, yeah, sure, because everybody else is nodding. Well, okay, you might be in that group. I hope you understand this. But So, now this one. Great question to ask. Why has Satan wanted to kill the Jews throughout history? And it is this answer, exclusively this answer, to thwart Messiah from coming. 
Now, I'm going to talk about that more in just a second. But Zola Levitt, who has since passed away, made a list of things that I copied. Cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. Well, this is a cut and paste right here that I'll share with you. For thousands of years, the Jews have been the, the target of discrimination, persecution, and death. Okay? Now, first of all, Pharaoh tried to kill all the Hebrew children. Then Pharaoh chased them and thought he had them stuck at the, at the Red Sea and thought he was going to annihilate them. He got shocked. The Red Sea opens and he dies and drowns in the Red Sea. Moab tried to destroy Israel. The Canaanites amassed armies to try to destroy them. Then we know that the Assyrians and the Babylons did take them in captivity. We know that Haman almost pulled it off in the book of Esther to kill all the Jews. We know that the Roman army did destroy Judea and Jerusalem, the first in 70 AD and the second in 135 AD. And we do know that the Jewish people have been scattered. The diaspora is what it's called scattered throughout the world, have not had their own homeland until a specific time. May 14, 1948, miracle of miracles, God has them reestablish uh, re in their land. Now look at, Hitler tried to kill them in modern times, and he couldn't do it. Six million he did. One third of the Jews on the earth got killed then. We know that two thirds at this Holocaust will get killed. Antichrist Holocaust. But then God will allow them to establish their land. And immediately after they establish their land, on that date, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, with their massive armies against the Jewish people who had almost nothing to defend themselves with, yet were victorious because of God. And those people knew, and the rest of the world knew, that something strange is happening with these Jewish people. That their God is protecting them. In 1967, they tried it again. In 1973, another time. Soundly defeated because of the God of Israel. We know that the Palestinians, the jihadists, we know that Iran and many of the Arab nations have, have, have promised to destroy the nation of Israel. Hezbollah, Hamas. And we know that anti-Semitism is on the rise in this world today. And that, the, that there's a strong effort to be discriminating and to persecute the Jewish people even to this day. And we know that this will reach its zenith with the Antichrist in the tribulation period. The kingdoms of this world belong to whom? Well, God ultimately. But during this epoch of time, Satan is actually ruling over all of these kingdoms. All of the, Look at the presidents, and the, unless they're given to Christ, but... He's got his hands, his mitts into everything. He's got his mitts into everything. He has relentless persecution and opposition of the Jews to annihilate them. This is almost an insane strategy. It's been insanity what he's done for thousands of years. For Satan, the destruction of Israel is a matter of self-preservation. Ultimately, the survival of Israel results in the eternal perdition or destruction of Satan. He must destroy the nation of Israel. Now, why hasn't Satan been able to accomplish this? Why hasn't he? To exterminate the Jews. It's because God has promised to preserve his people, his covenant people. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 36 say these words. Watch this. Thus says the Lord, that is capital L-O-R-D. 
Jehovah, Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, says God, then the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. You see what it says? The sun, the moon, the stars, everything has to not exist before this will happen. Impossible. Satan wants to destroy the people of Israel. But the people of Israel, the apple of God's eye, you know what else they're called? The wife of Jehovah. And our God will protect his family. The presence of the Jewish nation, folks, is a strong evidence to the truth of God. You can witness to people about this who have a question about it. Atheists in particular. There's no people group that has been displaced for thousands and thousands of years that have re-inhabited their homeland, established as a nation. How many Canaanites do you see? How many Hittites? How many Amorites? How many Philistines? How many Pezzasites and other ites? You see none of them. But you see Jews today because God has protected his children. Remember, the reason for the tribulation is this. Remember, it's that last week of Daniel. It's the 70th week of Daniel. That seven-year period of time. It has a specific reason. And that is to break the will of the holy people. They have rejected Messiah. And this last week, that tribulation period, is for the Jews to come into the family of God and, and, and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Daniel 12, 7 says this, When the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things will be finished. Then it will be finished. So the Jewish people must submit to Messiah's rule. So that for Jesus to return, the Jewish people have to do two things. And if you've ever memorized anything, these, this would be the two things to memorize. They, they have to confess their national sin of rejecting Messiah. Now, the, the final rejection that we see in the Gospels is Matthew chapter 12, where they ascribe the things that Jesus was doing to Satan. That was the leadership of Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all those people. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. It was a final rejection for the nation of Israel. And then Jesus in Matthew 13 starts to speak in parables. Only for those who really want him. That's the last one. But Hosea 5.15 says this, I will return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That word affliction is anguish, distress, tribulation. In their tribulation, then they will seek me. And it's interesting that the Jewish people will go all the way through the tribulation period to just about the very end, just a few days before they do this. Number two, they have to plead for Messiah to return. That's Matthew 23, 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those who are sent to you, how I've longed to gather you as a hick, chick gathers her hens under, under her wings, but you were not willing. So your house is left to you desolate until you say, blessed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord. They must plead for Jesus to come back and recognize their national sin of rejecting Messiah. Now, back to our text. Now, what, do they, what does the world do with the two witnesses in verse 10? 
It's hip, hip, hooray. They're dead. They're in the streets. It's like good riddance to bad rubbish. We finally got rid of these guys. We can get back to normal and have Antichrist do his thing. They, remember this. This is a good thing. Remember, the world hates what God loves. They hate what God loves. And they love what God hates. Aren't we seeing that today? The Antichrist is going to be all full of himself. He's going to think he's the all-powerful one. But it's only going to last for three and a half days. And verse 11, shocked by God. Verse 11. Now after three and a half days, the breath, the pneuma of God, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and watch this. You think this won't happen? And great fear fell on those who saw them. These, these two bodies, probably tortured to some extent, looking pretty rough, naked in the streets, full of dirt, full of grime, full of nasty, full of flies, and whatever's going to happen, they stand up right before their eyes, and the whole world sees this. Can you imagine? The earth dwellers are shocked. The breath of life entered them. They stand on their feet from celebration to shock and awe. And let me say this. What a difference three and a half days make here. But remember, what a difference a day makes in our lives. You just hold on. You never know what God's going to do. And the result, you guessed it, is this. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And that fear is phobos. Phobia. We get our word phobia. Ab Object terror, non-functionality, can't move. But that's not the end of it. Verse 12, there's more shock, more shock from God. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Now, isn't this blow your mind time? Blow your mind time completely. They stand on their feet. They hear the command come up here. Now, these are, the, these are the witnesses. They hear the command. I don't think the people in the city hear the command. They get a visual. They get a visual. They get, wow, look at this one. These guys hear an unmistakable voice, a heart-stopping voice. They ascend in a cloud, and wow of wows, their enemies witness this. Just like when Jesus rose and the disciples witnessed it in Acts 1.9, caught up into the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. Yet the earth dwellers still will not repent. God is not, God is not through. There's more to come. Now think about something. Mind-blowing miracles don't turn people to God. How many times have you heard, if I could just see a miracle, if God would just perform for me, if, if he would just do something just for me, just perfect for me because I deserve to see it, then I might believe. Oh, no. Oh, no, you won't. Folks, it's not about evidence. If you bought into the strong delusion, the world system, it's not about evidence. It's, it's about hard hearts. Hard hearts could care less about the evidence. They just want their way. God will protect his people. God will protect his people then, and God will protect his people now. And when he says it's time to go, it's time to go. And when it's time to go to heaven, can you imagine that sight? Caught up in the clouds. I mean, that's astounding to me. But it doesn't stop there. These people are still not believing. They need more. 
So verse 13, in the same hour, right at the same time these guys are flying up into heaven, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now look, this is a relatively small earthquake for the tribulation period, maybe even for some of the massive things that have happened in our times. An earthquake killing 7,000 people. Some died and some gave glory to God. And finally, some turn and live. Finally. But we saw an earthquake in the sixth seal in Revelation 6.12, which was greater. But we're going to see in the seventh bold judgment, the greatest earthquake of all in Revelation 16.19. Watch this where it says, Jerusalem will be divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations all throughout the earth fall. Now that's a big earthquake. That's like a global earthquake. This little earthquake, only a tenth go down, yet it's terrifying. Now think about this. I want to ask you this. Take a little diversion here. Why the quakes in our lives? Every one of us has them. Why the quakes in our lives? And I believe this. God uses everything in our lives the good, the bad, and the downright ugly to point us to God. And I cannot answer to you the whys of life. I don't know why these things happen. But through it all, I have learned something. That I'm going to trust in the Lord until I die. I will trust Him. Romans 8.28, folks, you have to believe it's true. If you're going to live with any peace and tranquility, in this unstable world, you must embrace Romans 8.28. God does work all things for good. For those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, and that is the good. There is good that comes in, and there is the bad, and there is the ugly. It's good to remember this, folks, when you're in ugly land. If you're not in ugly land now, you'll be in ugly land soon. It just it hit, Ugly hits everybody. When you don't understand land, it's good to remember this. And also remember, God is a God of mercy. He's doing all of these things to bring them out into his family. The rest were afraid and gave glory to God. Now, might some of these folks that have believed been the worshipers that were in the temple? Might some of these been the Gentiles in the courts? God will save people. They finally believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And those who believe, it'll likely cost their lives because the abomination of desolation is right on their heels. They will not take the mark and they will die. Now in closing, shock and awe killed and resurrected. Now, I think you would agree with this. I think you will unless you're really in the twilight zone and to, or to whatever those weird things were when we were little. I must say what lies ahead is indeed strange. And some might say weird. And certainly something that humanity has never seen. Okay, that's what's coming. The really strange stuff. And we also must realize that quakes come into our lives. Every one of us at unexpected times, strange unexpected times, and our lives are shaken. Every life gets shaken by God. 
And usually and hopefully it's from complacency of all the apathy of life into the wonder of God to full alert. Some quakes may be good. Some quakes are ugly. But all quakes have a purpose. Even when I don't understand. Please, we won't understand most of it here. That is why scripture says, Now I see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully as I am fully known. We don't see clearly here. That is why we have to trust him. In our text today, the earth dwellers faced many quakes. Now watch this. Fire breathing witnesses. Now, that's astounding stuff to me. Drought, plague, shocked by God by the resurrection of two witnesses, shocked by God when they ascended into heaven, and then the earthquake, and it took all these things for some of them to believe and give glory to God. Now, please, take a pause right here. These people looked like none of them were ever going to believe. And it is incumbent upon us to continue to believe that God is going to work in that impossible situation. Because you never know what is going to turn someone to the living God. You never know. You never know. Now, fear was their motivator to change. That's for sure. That's some strange stuff that's going on. And God can use fear to drive people to himself. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus talked way more about hell than he did heaven. And he said, whatever you do, don't come here. And then he used hyperbole, not actually do this. But if you have to, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, that sort of thing. That's hyperbole. He's not telling you to do that. He's just giving you an illustration that's so bad, don't go there no matter what. That's Jesus. Now, Jesus always tells us the truth. So fear can be a motivator. But I'll tell you what, I believe that love is the greatest motivator of all. And I believe it's the love of God. Romans 2.4 says this, It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Titus 2.11, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Everybody is graced by God. Everybody is touched in some way. In 1 John 4.8, we know that God is love. That's his essence, is love. John 3.16, he proved his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In John 15.13, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You know what he says? If you follow me, you are my friends. You are my friends. In Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love towards us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When I'm still a, this pathetic, awful, nasty, God-hating person, Jesus Christ died for me. In spite of who I am. That's love. That's off the charts love. You know, First John 3, we use this word love so casually. I love you. I love you. I love the peanut butter. I love the cake. I love the this. I love it. I love, just love everything. You know what? John, 1 John 3.18 says this. Let us not love by word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. God loved us, not by just saying he loves us, which means a lot, okay? Don't misunderstand. But demonstrate, it's a verb, it's an action. It's an action that we do. The giving God gave his best. He gave his only begotten son. Jesus came to earth as a love gift to humanity. 
And by the way, he's the only one that can save us from our sins. We know that. They don't. The rest of the world doesn't. They think there's multiple ways to God. Just choose your path. We do not worship the same God. It doesn't matter what any theologian says about Allah being the same as Jehovah. They are not the same. Salvation is found in none other. For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is exclusivity of Jesus Christ that causes the world to hate us. They call us intolerant. And yet Christianity is the most tolerant of all religions. It's embracing of everyone, but it tells you the truth. There's one way to God. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There is, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. There's one way. The only one who can remove our sins is Jesus. Jesus took all of my sins on himself on the cross. Jesus paid the debt that I could not pay. Jesus died so that I can live. Now that's love, okay? That's love. Your part is real simple. Believe and receive the gift. Now that's not works. Now people say, oh, that's works. That's works. You look at you're doing a work. You're, you're, you're getting a gift. No, no. That's, if I'm getting a gift, I have done nothing for that gift. Jesus does it all. He paid it all. He did it all. And folks, I don't know about you, but that love changed me. And I hope it changed you also. God loves people. And God not, does not desire to pour his wrath on people. How, what, did, what, did, what did God say in Isaiah? Pretend it's chapter 18. <laughs> Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should perish? But turn and live. That's the heart of God. He has no desire that anybody perish. God loves us. His love is so strong that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. That's demonstrated love. That's off the charts love. That's amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's amazing love. Folks, our world is headed for shock and awe. Lots of strange stuff is on the horizon. You think we're in weirdo land now? This is nothing. A time when the wrath of God will be poured out on an unbelieving world. Remember, God has done everything for you. Remember the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He's washed it white as snow. Now it's up to you. It's up to us. The wrath of God or the love of God. It really gets that simple. For those who choose love, folks, guess what? The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I would say amen to that too. Let's pray. And thank you for hanging in with this strange chapter. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Lord, this is strange stuff, but we believe it because you told us about it. You told us this is going to happen. And you have been credible all the way through the history of humanity right up to this present day. And we have every reason to believe you'll carry it on into the future because you are a God of truth. And what you say will come to fruition. Father, thank you for this time. Speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, some of us need the comfort of you, knowing that you are merciful and kind and gracious. Some of us need to be challenged where we are in our faith. Do, do we really believe that you did all of this? Some of us are lost. Some are lost and just don't know you as their Savior. May this be the most terrific day of their lives when they say yes to the Lord Jesus 
believe and receive the gift of salvation. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Follow him. You'll never be disappointed. Thank you for the time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.